This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg with my co-host Craig Blumenshine. Hello, Craig. Hey, Ashley. How are you? I'm not too bad. I'm looking forward to hearing the movie review coming up in the second half of today's show, all about Zone of Interest. And I gather you're going to be talking a little bit about the Oscars. And we we are. And this is an interesting movie. It talks about concentration camps. Mm. But I had never considered the fact that, okay, right next door to concentration camps during World War II, people live their lives. That's what this movie's about. Matt's review about it is really good. All right. Well, we look forward to hearing that in the second half of today's show. But we're going to start learning about the wonderful things that this state has to offer. And in part, some of the crops, some of the beauty here. We grow a lot of sunflowers. We do. And and we're going to re-air one of my favorite episodes that I've had, quite frankly, since I've been here. It's Travels with Darley, which is a TV show that airs Sundays at 3.30 on Prairie Public. This week's episode is titled North Dakota Chasing Sunflowers. And here are excerpts from the interview that I conducted with Darley last fall. She's such a pleasant person. I was able to come to North Dakota in 2019 to film an episode. We filmed in the western part of the state. So we did the Theodore Roosevelt National Park, Watford City area, a lot of Native American culture there. And it was awesome. I'm trying to get to all 50 states and do as much of America as I can because a lot of travel shows go international. And there's so much to see right here in the USA. So I was excited to come back and do more of North Dakota. So we're doing Fargo, Bismarck, and beyond. We were just out in Carrington. We went to Jamestown National Buffalo Museum, went out on a bison safari. So we're really getting off the beaten path in North Dakota and seeing some beautiful stuff along the way. When did you realize that travel was your gig? Uh, so I actually realized it really early on, I think. Um, I was able to go to Europe with a friend's family when I was in eighth, ninth grade in high school. Um, they invited me and my mom was like, yeah, go. And it just opened my eyes to the fact that there's such a big world out there. And it was beautiful. And the history was so rich. The food was amazing. And I was like, wow, I really need to see more and share it. Because I just think there's so many. You can learn so much when you travel. And that's the beauty of it. Many of us have taken vacations, but how do you make that next step to make it your career? Tell us the background of how this has all come about. So I graduated and I worked throughout high school and college, actually, in radio and television. And then and when I graduated from GW, I decided to move to New York and I got a job at CBS News and I was at 48 Hours for a while. But working there, I thought, well, I love this job, but I really want to go out there and try to see the world and, and see what I can do with that. I wanted to host a travel show, but as you know, that's not an easy job to get. I was like, what could I do that would be different than everyone else? And I have a passion for horseback riding, and I think it's a really interesting way to see a, a new place. So I came up with the idea for this show, Equitrekking, and I ended up going horseback riding around the world for many years. I wrote a book about it. I did a series that won Emmy Awards. And uh, yeah, and, and people, I think people saw it and thought, at first they thought it was, was strange, the concept. But when you saw the show, you'd say, wow, but I've learned so much about the people and the horses and the history and the landscapes through all these combinations of really just storytelling. You get a lot of your ideas from locals, and I say that in quotes, and try to stay away from maybe the most known places that folks go to when they travel. I talk to a lot of people. At this point, it's really, you know, it's it's kind of a give and take at this point. I love sharing with people. I find that people are communicating with me on social media. I have the friends and family network. Um, I talk to local tourism people. I talk to other TV people. I talk to other journalists. So I'm really just exchanging ideas all the time. And because we're a small team, a lot of things come about organically. So we'd been to North Dakota before and it was, you know, I knew people here was a great reason to come back, but a lot of it's pretty organic at this point, but it's really swapping ideas and people do send us emails and I look at them. I mean, I do get those emails, (laughs) good and bad. And, um, but I look at all of them and I, try to take away ideas or do more research based on that. And some stuff that comes up, like I used to work on writing for different equestrian magazines and ended up in Botswana, Africa, because my editor at Practical Horseman shared that she had gone and told me where to go. And so that's an, it, it's that firsthand information, really, that I think is the best. We travel, and sometimes where we go isn't quite what we thought it would be. Has that happened to you? Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> the biggest travel, I guess, blooper that has come your way has been? Oh, my gosh. Wow. Um, we've had a lot of bloopers. I mean, I think that you learn from all the bloopers. Like, we're constantly getting, we get lost a lot. I mean, you think with GPS and stuff, you're not going to get lost. <laughs> but, like, 
I remember walking through the streets of Seville, Spain, and we were completely lost. Those streets are winding around. You really, it's hard to navigate. And But in getting lost, you sometimes find things you didn't expect, and those can be the most beautiful things. And when you have to talk to someone to ask for directions, sometimes it leads to another conversation. And I find a lot of times, because we stand out, we have our film equipment, and we're, you know, we're out there capturing this information and filming it, people do want to talk to us and, and learn about where we're from. And in that exchange, sometimes you can ask them questions and figure out even new places that you didn't think you'd, you'd even have on your agenda. So that's great. Carly, you travel with a fairly small, tight group. This is not a major production company that you're working with, it seems to me. No, no. It's my production company, and it's very small. Um, we're very grassroots, and we've been that way for 15 years now. And we've done—I'm I'm really proud of what we do because everybody's so multi-talented. I mean, I couldn't do this show without Greg Barna as my director of photography. We worked together from the beginning, and like since the second, since the second episodes that I did of Equitrekking. So that's a very long time. We know each other so well. We can order for each other. I mean, it is what I call a production family. Um, Chad Davis is been with me forever and you just it's like it's the nicest group of people that are super talented and because everyone is so diverse in their abilities we're able to do it in a small scale and that that's helpful with the type of productions we're doing because we're also unobtrusive when we move into spaces and places it's the most challenging trip you've had to organize they there's been a lot of challenging trips i mean we did a trip to quebec in the winter and we really had to barter with the cold temperatures. It sounds, yeah, it's freezing, yeah, but our equipment literally froze one day and we had to put it on a heated snowmobile to try to bring it back to life. <laughs> and then we were enjoying We can it. appreciate that here for sure. Yeah, right? Oh, <laughs> yes, you can here in Pardo. So in Jordan, we actually dealt with, we were doing a this canyon hike through water and then our equipment got really wet <laughs> and we were really nervous and we've had things break and you know, we dealt with uh, going through through customs at airports and and having issues with our equipment possibly getting confiscated. So <laughs> we've had it all happen. We've we've gotten sick on the road. I mean, at this point, if it hasn't happened, I'm not sure. <laughs> you must have a bucket list of travel places. Darlie, give us a, a taste of even for you who have been a lot of places where you still want to go. So I really want to get down to Peru at some point. I haven't been there. I've heard Cusco has amazing cuisine, and I'm a big foodie, so that's definitely on my list, and I think it would be an amazing trip, and really more to South America in general and also more Asia. I love Asian cuisine. I live in New York City, and I'm always tasting new foods there. I think it's a great way to travel within the U.S. is to go to a lot of, a lot of our cities now, even I'm discovering diverse cuisine here in Fargo at Brujola last night. So there, that's a big reason for me to travel, but it's really about the people. People make the food. They have the history, and it's the, the best thing about travel, I think. Darlie, what have you learned about yourself, and how has your show changed since its first season? It's changed a lot, actually. I think it's gotten a lot deeper. Um, so in the past few years, we've done, I'm doing these segments in my series now where we dive into different topics. So at the beginning, it was more general travel, and we did a lot of adventure stuff in nature, which we're still doing. Uh, but now we've gone deeper into history. So I've done some episodes on World War One sites of interest to Americans in France. I did the Civil Rights Trail in Alabama, which was super impactful as far as the stories go there. And the women, I interviewed women who lived through the movement. Uh, it was the stories were quite amazing, and I feel like we have done a good job in recent years of documenting this oral history and so much of it that is oral and hasn't necessarily been recorded. So in the past few years, we've been working to go to these amazing travel locations, but really get in depth with people who've lived through history. And either they've lived through it firsthand or they have other people they know or they have a passion for that subject. That was Darlie Newman. Her show, Travels with Darlie, airs this Sunday at 3.30 p.m. on Prairie Public Television. And this week's episode is North Dakota Chasing Sunflowers. More Main Street's on your menu as we meet Rick Guillaume and introduce a new segment, it's about food, that will appear regularly on Main Street. Stay with us. Dakota Medical Foundation is reminding listeners of Giving Hearts Day, Thursday, February 8th. Since 2008, this initiative has helped charities across North Dakota and Northwest Minnesota raise more than $165 million. Learn more at givingheartsday.org. 
This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg in studio with my co-host, Craig Blumenshine. Ashley, how are you? I'm not too bad. You're not uh, hungry? I am a little hungry, yeah. actually. <laughs> and um, I'm glad that I am, actually, because we are in studio also with Rick Guion, who is, you know, professionally the major gifts manager here at Prairie Public. But he's a bit of a, of a man about town, a man about state, perhaps, a little bit of a gourmand, uh, a a food lover. <laughs> yes, guess. absolutely. How are you, Rick? Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And I'm it's getting to be about, you know, that time to have a little snack here, so I'm <laughs> <laughs> snack o'clock. Uh-huh. Are, are you a food adventurist? Is that I, what you are? I would say a food adventurist and I've been that way for a long time and I got into it probably late teenage years because I started working for a refugee resettlement. And I got a flavor for a lot of ethnic flavors in the late 1990s. And that was a little different than what folks were used to around here. Now we're used to it. And uh, we're seeing just a lot of restaurants, ethnic food. And that's where I like to head. My my mom's side of the family is also Italian. I grew up around here. It's a little different than the Norwegian-German, although I'm (laughs) German-Hungarian. But, you know, it's a little different. And so we grew up big eaters. Interested about your refugee history. Yeah. What nationality of food was your experience there? Well, a lot of it, uh, Vietnamese, that was a big thing. There was a Vietnamese restaurant here in Fargo, early 2000s. Uh, that was very good. Uh, Bosnian food was very good, former Yugoslavian, that sort of thing. Some African food, that was interesting. Um, Somalian food's actually very good, It's and it's very spicy. So yeah. I enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> their rice, their yellow rice is amazing. Well, Rick, I want to talk about, you know, this refugee idea as it ties into a blog that you run uh, called FM Eats or Fargo Moorhead Eats. And yes, surface level, it's about food, but food (laughs) is not about food. Food is about connection. It's about appetite. It's about learning something and, and being in a different state of mind, at least to to people who love food, <laughs> that's what it's about. So give us a little bit more of a sense of, of how you think about food and its ability to unite people. Yeah, I'd agree with all those points. And I think 32,000 other people would. We just hit 32,000 <laughs> followers on our Fargo Moorhead Eats uh, Facebook group. And yeah, I mean, people love food around here. There are people on from Bismarck, Grand Forks, all sorts of things. And to get back to the point of ethnic cuisine, one of the biggest things we do on that page is we really try to promote food, ethnic foods uh, in town here, not only in town, but the surrounding area too. So yeah, I mean, it's a big part of all of those cultures coming together here and making for a really vibrant community, a really vibrant state. We want to be a welcoming state. And this is part of it. Food can bring people together. It's one of those things, especially these days, with the p- politically divisive, uh, that's <laughs> about the, that's the one best. way to put it, right? And so, with food, I think, especially with social media, we try to keep politics off that group, um, you know, and we just try to come together and have Do, a discussion. Does that happen? Do you really need to be moderating a, that much? Yes, it does. Unfortunately, <laughs> I am curious though, Rick. What is what do people respond to on your social media um, posts the most? Right now, the trending thing is soup, especially Nephla soup. (laughs) (laughs) And I went on a tour of 16 restaurants and ate Nephla soup, and I'll eat it around the state because I really like it. Um, And I've tried it in Bismarck and Grand Forks and other places in the state, too. But (laughs) uh, yes, Nephla soup, French onion soup, it's cold out. We're we're in kind of a cold period, and people love soup. So seasonal responses to your... To your Facebook posts, a lot of a lot of that, and a lot of like Mexican food right now. Mm. It, it seems like people want that that spice. Are you a good cook, Rick? I've been cooking for a long time. I used to cook professionally in restaurants. I don't know. Other people can judge if I'm a good cook or not, but I've been doing it for a long time. I'm kind of by myself, so I don't cook a lot for myself these days. But when I go to parties or stay at some friends' houses or at the lake in the summertime is really kind of a special occasion. I'll cook up a big. Yeah. You have to cook for Ashley and I Thursday night. Oh. Your best dish. <laughs> what are we eating? Uh, probably, well, if I'm really going at it, I'm going to try some Indian stuff because I like those spices. And it, it does take a lot. And you're there all day grow, toasting and grinding spices, doing this, doing that, chopping up fresh vegetables and that sort of thing. I do like Thai food. 
Um, anything ethnic, I love those flavors, and I love a little spice. Let's talk a little bit about sourcing ingredients, because it's not easy to cook Indian food if you are shopping at a small local grocery store. Uh, where do you find the spices that you end up using? Well, here in Fargo, uh, A&A Supermarket on Main Avenue, and they just That's expanded. That's the Asian and American market. Yes, exactly. And they're, yeah, they've just put in a new deli there, by the way, and I'm going to be trying that oh, soon. that's and a pro tip. I didn't know that. Yeah, Lulu's, and it's going to be more on the Vietnamese side of things, banh mi, pho, oh, all those so great. two of my favorite words. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like we need to take a little adventure. <laughs> um, but A&A, yes, Atochi Products, uh, natural grocers in town here, and there's one in Bismarck. Uh, Costco actually has some good stuff here or there you kind of got to look because that switches in and out too mm-hmm. but um yeah i'd i'd like to go to the ethnic specialty grocery stores and it's kind of an adventure it's a trip you go around and go to three <laughs> or four places and i actually enjoy that and spending money to most people doesn't sound exciting but it is to me <laughs> can i ask you how you feel about the the weird miscellaneous food aisle at tj maxx yeah, but you can find some really <laughs> fun stuff there. I, and the chocolate, I liked. you can find like Lindt chocolate, Ghirardelli chocolate. I'm a big chocolate guy. I'll eat chocolate all day. So I like that aisle. <laughs> you also write a little bit, Rick, about food outside of your social media posts. Where, where can people read what you write? Yeah, High Plains Reader. It's an alternative monthly publication. Now you can get it to hard copy at Hornbacher's and uh, Happy Harry's around Fargo, Fargo-Moorhead area. Um, yeah, I do. I just wrote an article on Nephila Soup. I spent a lot of time doing that, not only <laughs> with the restaurant research, but just research in general, uh, looking at like what's the history with Germans from Russia, that sort of thing. Prairie Public has a, a cookbook out called Gudis Essen that came out a number of years ago. Sue Belcom was involved in that, of course. And so looking at recipes in that cookbook and church cookbooks around South Central North Dakota, the Kukin country, people call it, and then Southwestern North Dakota, where my dad is from, the Regent, Hedinger County area. So a lot of research. I spent a lot of time on that article, but <laughs> it, yeah, <laughs> I gained a lot of weight too. Yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> We're visiting today with food aficionado Rick Guion, and he has been a judge for food festivals in the area. And Rick, I want to talk to you about how you judge food. <laughs> what, you know, Especially if it's maybe not your favorite food, but you have to say, okay, but this is what panna cotta is supposed to be like. I don't know anyone who doesn't love panna cotta. That was a terrible example. But <laughs> well, I'm always hungry, and so, yes, judging <laughs> is great. And I'm one of the upcoming judges, and I'm really excited about this because Molly Ye is also a judge at the mm. upcoming uh, Hottish Festival at Drecker and, and she has a here. show on Food Network, Girl Meets Farm, and then the restaurant in East Grand Forks called Bernie's, which they're cookies, by the way. She is magical about cookies. It's a fun place to eat. Yeah. It, it really is. And I've been up there a couple of times. And the second time I was up there, she served me and she was serving everyone else. Mm. And she's so nice to talk to. And you can tell the passion, not only about the establishment, about the food she's serving. And her family was there, so I got to meet her family. And that was really nice. Uh, and, yes, I think her baked goods are the things that really shine up there. And she has a lot of local products she also sells in a little shop off to the side there, off off the bar. And it's, it's just a really neat place and a gem in East Grand Forks in this area. Besides the quality of food, which is obviously really important, it is the passion of some of these smaller restaurants that I like the most. Mm. It must impact you too. Yes, it, it does. And I was just reading about that in a cookbook I was reading last night by uh, Chef Sarah Watson, who's a local chef here. And she just talked about how she loves, she fell in love with serving people. She was in college, mm. got an art history degree, didn't know what to do with her life. She was in college for like six years or something. <laughs> and she started working in restaurants and she found that she really enjoyed serving good food to people. And Mm. so, yes, there's that aspect of it too when I'm making a big meal at the lake or something like that. And it's really satisfying. Let me ask you this, Rick, because, you know, we're talking about Sarah Watson and then Molly Ye, too, who has a bigger presence with the show on the Food Network. And then there's other people, you know, like Gordon Ramsay. And you can have this 
your food comes from a place of love and you can have this food comes from a place of ego. <laughs> right. Let's talk about what do you like in the personalities behind those people and, and the food there? That's that's a really good question and a, and a very interesting question. And I find that I like to eat at places where it's a little more of a like a, they just do a really good job. There's not a lot of ego. They, they're hardworking people. And you'll find that those restaurants to me are the kind of the unsung hero types are are the best ones. And I can't afford to go out and eat a hundred dollar meal all the time. And prices have been increasing going out to restaurants. So you kind of got to watch those things. And I, I go out for, you know, the $15 lunches or the $20 dinners. That may be high to some people, but these days it's it's pretty average. But mm. but yeah, those places that, you know, Ishtar in downtown Fargo comes to mind. Burn Bombs, uh, uh, Chef Andrea Baumgartner, she's, you know, James Beard nominee and just very humble, she and her husband. And so I enjoy those, those places the best, yes. G- generally our restaurants, now on good footing post-COVID, in the state, Rick, from what, from what you have seen, relative to everything, staffing, all of those issues we've all heard about. I have a lot of friends in the business, and I do ask them about that, like, how are things going financially for you? And I found, especially just seeing all the restaurant openings, is it's, it's really coming back very strong. People want to go out to eat. They want to uh, interact with people. They, they want to try new things. And so we're seeing really a boom, I think, in... Fargo, Bismarck, and Grand Forks of new restaurants. And it's really, really good to see because, yes, COVID was extremely tough on these folks. Sure. Give us a little sense, Rick, of where you go when you are traveling this state. If you're in Minot or if you're in Grand Forks or Dickinson or Medora, where do you stop? We want the hidden gems here, Rick. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think uh, in Grand Forks, my favorite place, and yeah, it's a little expensive, is Harry's Steakhouse, and that's Hal Gershman's Steakhouse, and it's just it's just very good. There's a new place in Grand Forks, a newer place called Helix that I need to try. That's kind of a bistro type of thing. Ellie's Ivy up there is very good. Bernie's, of course. There's quite a few places in Grand Forks these days. Fergus Falls, Minnesota, I love Toast. That's a breakfast brunch type place. Fargo, Burn Bombs is always a favorite beer and fish downtown here, Ishtar, there's numerous ethnic places to go to here, which is just great. Bismarck, Anima Cucina, Noodle, Noodle Zip, there's a Pearl Grill, uh, Brick Oven Bakery in Bismarck is great. It's kind of a coffee shop, uh, French pastry sort of theme. And uh, Brick Oven Bakery, I've been there, like last time I was through Bismarck, I think it was stopped there three times. <laughs> But there are other gems in the state, say like the Pheasant Cafe in Mott, North Dakota, or the Uptown Cafe in Cullum, which are kind of iconic in their areas. And so when I'm going through those areas, I do like to stop, too. And I'm always hungry for more, so if anyone has some (laughs) suggestions, you can email us and I'll be sure to stop by. <laughs> okay, so how can somebody email you? Well, here at Prairie Public, my email address is rgion at prairiepublic.org, rgion at prairiepublic.org. Or on the Facebook page. And I know it's called Fargo Moorhead Eats, but I, I, you might need to change your name because it sounds like you've got members from across the state. <laughs> we do. There's a lot of members on there from, yeah, Minot, Bismarck, Grand Forks, Fargo, Wapiton, the Lakes area in Minnesota, and some friends of mine from southwestern North Dakota on there from <laughs> Modern Regent. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's growing. It grows about 100 followers or more a week. Wow, and congratulations. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's also a lot of fun. And part of why I started it, is to help these restaurants give them a boost after COVID. And I've been thanked numerous times by folks, which is extremely humbling uh, because I really like to eat and I really have a lot of respect for people in the restaurant industry because they work their butts off. Well, Ashley, we want to let our listeners know that 
this won't be the last conversation no. that we're going to be having with Rick. Yeah. We're going to hear from him about Nefla Soup, and, you know, we're coming up on a pledge drive here, short and sweet, so maybe we can talk about chocolate. You could bring in, I'm just saying, you could bring in some chocolate for us to sample. Rick, you can bring in anything you want us to taste test for, anything at all. We're ready. <laughs> Rick Guion, a food aficionado. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Our weekly news discussion with Dave Thompson, coming up after this. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why? Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. The question why is very empowering. It's about the divine, it's about the moral, it's about the pleasurable, it's about fear. Why is everything? I'm not very good with authority and I'm not very good with limits. And so I like a question that gives me the ability to do whatever I want, whenever I want. I was born and raised in Manhattan on the edge of a neighborhood that most people would know as Spanish Harlem. I ended up in North Dakota because they offered me a job. It's that simple. And we've had a very good life here so far. Dispel these myths. Philosophy is boring. I guess I would ask you to ask yourself, are you boring? Do you think you have nothing of interest to offer anybody? You are philosophy. Philosophy is you. Everything you ask, everything you think, everything you want, everything you strive for, this is what makes up philosophy. Philosophy itself is compelling enough and exciting enough that it is pretty much the oldest discipline. And philosophers had more influence on the world than almost anybody. Plato, Aristotle, we live in their world. And so if you want to make philosophy exciting, you have to be exciting. Philosophy majors can't get jobs or make any money. Philosophy is the highest paid major of all of the humanities, and the rate of return is actually the same over a lifetime as engineering. Listen to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life every second Sunday at 5 p.m. Central, 4 Mountain, on Prairie Public. Welcome back to Main Street on Prairie Public. I am pleased to be joined by our news director, Dave Thompson. Dave, welcome back. I never take a winter vacation. This year I took a winter vacation and was gone for 15 days. Dave, I'm just going to suggest take a winter vacation when the winter's really bad. It hasn't That's been true. that bad. <laughs> this winter, knock on wood. Well, we have a lot to get to since you've left and now returned. Governor Burgum announced he was not going to seek a third term. So we endured, and I use that word in air quotes, his long State of the State address this week. Dave, what were your takeaways? And then I'm going to ask you some specific questions about his State of the State address. There were a lot of takeaways because he's previewing what his last kind of job that he's going to do as governor is, and that is to put a budget together for the upcoming biennium as, a, as an executive budget proposal. He does that as the outgoing governor because he gives the budget address in the December organizational session, which convenes about a week before he actually is out of office. So he's got a lot of proposals. And I think some of the biggest hits we heard, complete elimination of income taxes, if possible, more emphasis on childcare, and now housing as a job force issue. And you're going to hear a lot about that, plus a couple of other initiatives that he would like to accomplish to try to attract people to North Dakota. One thing he did say, he thinks that North Dakota is an underestimated state, which is a, a term I've not heard. I've heard other governors like Ed Schaefer talk about North Dakota rocks or North Dakota strong. And he said North Dakota is underestimated, which is a very interesting concept. The other comment I've heard while he was running for president is his efforts to make North Dakota not be thought of as a flyover state anymore. But right. There is so much more here. And from this person's perspective, that's absolutely true. All right, Dave, let me ask you specifically about some takeaways. How feasible do you believe the complete elimination of state income tax is? Well, at this point, if you look at the numbers, if you look at the numbers that are, you know, tax collections, we're doing very well, we're over expectations, oil is still very strong, it probably will happen. But I will caution this because other legislators I've talked to said, yeah, we can do it right now, but what happens if they turn off the spigot on oil tomorrow? Then it's very hard to get a tax back in once you eliminate it. That's going to be an issue and that's going to be a discussion. Governor also makes a point that people may not be so much concerned about income tax as they are about property tax, but the state has no role in property tax, really. It's provided things that could lead to property tax relief in terms of 
supporting local governments that levy property taxes, but there are still property taxes. But he said the way to get rid of property taxes is not to do an initiated measure prohibiting them. There's a lot of things to unpack about that. I thought I heard him say that the legislature cannot solve the property tax issue. No, the legislature really can't do it. And it has to do with local governments and and trying to, as he said, control budgets and control spending as much as you can. Well, there are certain things out of everyone's out of everyone purview why property taxes have gone up, but a lot of it is valuation on housing. And there we go back and everything connects a little bit because he's talking about housing and especially affordable housing to get people to come to North Dakota and work. And maybe there's something there. There's probably some discussions that can and will be had on it. He remarked that North Dakota has one of the lowest, in fact, tied for the lowest in the country rate of unemployment. 1.7%. That is just fascinating to me. What strategies did the governor talk about to make North Dakota more relevant so that we're not that flyover state anymore? Dave? It's about talking about workforce, talking about working on things like destination grants. And you've heard about that. The, The legislature put some seed money toward developing some destinations, for example, this uh, Jamestown, expanding the bison world. On again, off again, on again, off again. You bet. But he says that really, if you really want North Dakota to shine, you have to make it an attractive place for people to come here. Now, he said it may mean more promotion of the Badlands. He said that's going to help when the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library will open up. Dave, what did the governor say might be the best next steps to really help solve this child care crisis? We've reported on that often since I have been here with Prairie Public. I have hosted guests. You have talked about it often. Absolutely. What are the best next steps that the governor talked about? One thing that stands out, I've been thinking about this a lot. In Watford City, the city of Watford City treats child care as a utility. And he said North Dakota needs to treat child care as a utility. It needs to be part of every conversation, every budget discussion. That's that's what he's saying. And now is the time to strike while the iron is hot. There's some ideological barriers to that. But he said, get over that. And if we want to start attracting younger people and younger families to move to the state and take care of the 30,000 plus jobs that are open in North Dakota, you have to have adequate child care. Let's talk a little bit more about housing, Dave. I recall this issue in Wyoming, Mm -hmm. and it was really great until they wanted to build this lower cost housing alternative in my neighborhood. Then people started to really take interest that wasn't necessarily positive. What is the governor saying is might be the solutions? Well, the governor's talking about maybe working on designs, making downtowns livable and walkable and making those affordable housing areas. And there's also the homeless problem. That, that, that is also a major problem that will be discussed in the upcoming legislative session. Dave, the fact that he has announced that he's not running for a third term, does that in any way make him a lame duck? That's very possible, but you know, he's going out on a high note. He's a very popular governor, one of the most popular in the, in the country. A lot of things that he is talking about have resonated with legislators. Dave, now we're going to have a race to see who will be North Dakota's next governor. And I have two questions about that. One, who are the possibilities in your eyes? Two, what kind of race do you think we'll see? Amicable or maybe different? That's going to be an interesting question. We know Kelly Armstrong, who is our North Dakota congressman, will be announcing for the Republican nomination. He's holding an event in Fargo this week to announce. That'll be on Friday, by the way. And there are others who are talking about it. Uh, Former Senator Tom Campbell is talking about making an announcement himself. And he was going to run for governor, even if Burgum was going to run for re-election. He was going to challenge Burgum. So that could have been a little bit uh, less than amicable at that point. Other names that are being discussed, Lieutenant Governor Tammy Miller, who says she's weighing her options. Public Service Commissioner Julie Fedorchek is talking about it as well. Those are the Republicans. I'm waiting for the Democrats to come up with a name now, and that'll be interesting to see who might step up to run for governor. Dave, in Wyoming, I would always ask this question to potential candidates. Who do you you think is going to run? Or are you going to run? And the answer was, well, I need a million dollars. Starters. What's it take in North Dakota? I think it's getting close to a million dollars now. I do because Governor Burgum, when he first ran, and that was against 
former Attorney General Wayne Stengem. Stengem got the, got the endorsement in the convention. But Burgum's plan was not to worry about the convention, but to go to the primary. Because there's a convention, then there's a primary, then there's a general. And Governor Burgum spent an awful lot of money to uh, get the nomination at the primary. I honestly think that it probably will be at least the high six figures and maybe low seven figures to win this. And it's going to take a lot of old-fashioned, you know, door-to-door, shake hands, retail politicking in North Dakota. People like to meet their people that, that they're going to be voting for. So we're going to see an interesting campaign this year. I'll be interested to see how this election unfolds and how the campaigning unfolds. I, I go back to this high-tech world that we're in now, and these campaign helpers walk the streets with a app that says, I don't need to waste time at that house. I don't need to waste time at this house. Wait, this house might be on the fence. Knock, knock, knock. Can we talk? And that drives me crazy. Uh, retail politics in an AI age is going to be extremely interesting. And I kid you not, AI will be a part of this. Mm-hmm. All right, Dave, what are you and your team working on? What's coming down the pike in this post state of the state week, which was really busy? Boy, the interesting stuff on Friday, the Public Service Commission's holding a work session on the CO2 pipeline that's been proposed. Uh, it was turned down once by the PSC. The PSC did agree to reconsider it. So the work session on Friday may say something interesting. Also, I have to say something. You know, technology is not 100% solid. I interviewed Lynn Helms, who has announced that he's retiring as North Dakota's Mineral Resources Director. Got back to the station, nothing on my recorder. And I was listening to it on my headphones. I've been there, Dave. Not, I'm yeah, sorry. There. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I've got the one more piece, and I've been talking about doing the just informational piece about how the library for the Theodore Roosevelt uh, Presidential Library got from Dickinson to Medora. Where it was actually proposed first was in New York, where Theodore Roosevelt was born. So there's there's a little interesting story on that. A little bit of an intrigue, a little bit of a a kind of a snaky path, but everybody seems to be real satisfied now that it's going to go in the Medora. Dave, welcome back to the United States. Welcome back to North Dakota and welcome back to Prairie Public's newsroom. Thank you, Craig. Appreciate it. Dave Thompson, our news director. More Main Street is on your menu. That's next. Dakota Medical Foundation is reminding listeners of Giving Hearts Day, Thursday, February 8th. Since 2008, this initiative has helped charities across North Dakota and Northwest Minnesota raise more than $165 million. Learn more at givingheartsday.org. There's a fanfare. That means it's time for our weekly trip to the movies with our in-house reviewer, Matt Olean. Matt, welcome back to Main Street. What a big week. Oh, big week, Craig. Yes, big one. One of my favorite weeks of the year, Oscar nominations. I'll bet that it is, Matt. And before we start Mm -hmm. talking about your thoughts, and boy, do you have some thoughts this year, let's talk about the movie you'd like to review. It's called The Zone of Interest. It's a historical, dramatic movie set around the Auschwitz concentration camp during World War II. And as I contemplate the movie, it seemed to me, yes, this must have had to have happened because, yes, people lived around the camp. Yeah, so this is based on a historical novel by Martin Amos that was written in 2014. Jonathan Glazer has adapted it. Glazer is a British director who received an Oscar nomination for Breast Director this week. So this is a multiple nominated film. It's up for Best Picture as well. And so a perfect time to talk about this movie. I will say it, it premieres at the Fargo Theater February 2nd. So people, most people have not seen this movie. I did get an advanced screener back in December. Liked it, didn't love it. Uh, I think the design of the film is what everyone's talking about. So Rudolf Haas, who was the commandant at Auschwitz, and his wife, played by Sandra Huller, Oscar nominee for Anatomy of a Fall. She's in this movie, too. Their kids, they all live right by Auschwitz. He, he's the guy. He's the CEO of Auschwitz, which is you know a ridiculous thing to say, but that's basically what he was. And they live in this wonderful villa. It's it's a nice house. They have parties. They have birthday parties for the kids. And all through this movie, these kind of daily activities are going on. And you can hear in the distance the gas chambers, machines, 
screams. You never see it. You only hear it. So that's the trick of the movie. You know, we've seen lots of Holocaust movies over the years. This one's not going to show it to you. They're going to show that banality of evil, you know, which is the phrase to describe Adolf Eichmann. And how was that in its historical Mm -hmm. context, Matt? How did you feel when you were taking that in? So initially, I thought this is a really good narrative trick. But as the film wore on, I do think the impact of the movie was dulled a little bit because we never see anything. The, The most we see is one of the girls who's like a servant for the Haas family. She will steal food in the middle of the night and get it to her fellow Jews who are starving, of course. So that's that's the closest we get really to getting inside the camp is this this servant girl who's, you know, fortunate, I use the word fortunate in quotation marks, sure. to work for the Haas family who steals food. So I think I would have liked maybe one or two scenes of something showing, and maybe maybe that's on me because the sound design of this movie is phenomenal, and it is up for the best sound Oscar. The sound is the movie. I mean, every sound you hear, you're wondering, what was that that I heard? And your mind starts working. It's an imaginative film. Glazer's a good director. He directed Under the Skin, Sexy Beast with Ben Kingsley years ago. And he's certainly deserving of this of this directing nomination. But I do think that the impact of the film is dulled a little bit because we never see anything. We know what happened at Auschwitz. Here's the crazy thing, Craig. Haas, after a day's work, he'll come home. You know, he comes in, he greets his wife, and you half expect and almost leave it to Beaver, honey, how was your day? I mean, that's how the film is played. It's played like this is his job. He comes home, and you half expect Sandra Huller to say, oh, may I take your hat and coat? Supper's on the table. Mm. Like you're watching Father Knows Best or Leave It to Beaver. And I think that's the point Glazer's making is these men who were so evil and so awful, they were almost like planners. They were like engineers. They were accountants. They were businessmen. And that's where that banality of evil comes in, that phrase that was used. They were death makers. And then there's later in the film, there's this meeting where, you know, the war is not going well. And they're concerned the Allies are going to discover all this, which we did, us and the Brits and the Russians. And they have this gigantic meeting. And it feels like you're at a board meeting. If you, you know, it, it feels like you're at some corporate board meeting where they're discussing, okay, let's do this with this camp. And I'll be, I'll be back at Auschwitz, Haas, Rudolf Haas, who later was executed at, at, after the Nuremberg trials. People can look that up. And it's all done so clinically and so technical that these men didn't think anything of it. This was their job to do. And he, you know, Haas gets rewarded by the high command because he's so good at his job. And he, he had all these new techniques and these techniques to, to kill people at a, at a quicker level. I mean, it's just it's horrible to talk about. But the way they approach their jobs, they could be like businessmen in downtown Fargo. That's mm. how it's approached. And that's the point of the film. So I like the film. I like that whole sound design. But I think the point was dulled just a little bit because we never get inside Auschwitz. You know, the only Jewish people we see, the main one is the servant girl. Uh, Christian Friedel, very good as Rudolf Haas. Sandra Huller, as I mentioned, plays his wife. A variety of other characters. So the cinematography is great. The sound design is great. I think the impact for me was dulled slightly. I have a history professor friend who did not like the book. And I have not read it, so I can't comment. He did not like the book at all. So he's not looking forward to seeing this movie. I would encourage people to see it. Just be aware that it's all going to be sound and it's all going to be in your mind. Of course, the world learned who the Oscar nominees are. You have thoughts about a lot of stuff relative to the Oscars, Matt. What are you thinking? So Oppenheimer's clearly the favorite. Clearly the favorite to win Best Director. Christopher Nolan, I think, is going to win Best Director. I think it's going to win, you know, it's going to win editing and and maybe sound or zone of interest possibly could win sound. You know, editing, uh, there's so many awards Oppenheimer, I think, is, is in line to win. Best Actor, we'll have to see. Killian Murphy, long, long was the favorite. I'm starting to feel the Paul Giamatti love for the holdovers. He could pull off the victory. But I think what people are talking about is, it's Oppenheimer, it's Poor Things, it's Barbie. But much of the talk was how Greta Gerwig did not get a directing nomination for Barbie. Broader than that, Snub Against Women Again has been the talk today. Well, Justine Triette was nominated for Best Director for Anatomy of a Fall. She's a French film director. 
I think Gerwig should have been nominated. I don't I don't know that Oscar voters, when they hand in their ballots, are that conscious of ooh, I'm gonna snub a woman today. I don't I don't know that that's going on. I had this chat with some friends of mine. They try to vote for the five they think are the best. But I think because of the significance of Barbie, how much money it made, it made Oppenheimer, you know, that weekend. It really helped at the box office. I think the whole design of the movie Barbie has to be credited to Greta Gerwig. So for her not to be nominated, I would have kicked out Scorsese for, I think, the overrated Killers of the Flower Moon or Jonathan Glazer for the Zone of Interest. I'd have put Alexander Payne in there for the holdovers and taken those two out. So I think Alexander Payne was snubbed as well. But yes, I hear the blowback, and it's certainly Gerwig was nominated for the script. And then Margot Robbie, not nominated for Best Actress, that got a lot of talk too. What I will say about that is the Best Actress category is extremely competitive this year. And I have not seen Nyad with Annette Bening, so I cannot comment. A, should Robbie be nominated? Annette Bening kicked out. I'm going to review Nyad in a couple weeks. It's on Netflix. Then I'll be able to comment better on that. I think the Gerwig snub is far worse than the Margot Robbie snub. It's my thought. The Robbie thing, I can see her not getting in the five. You know, that's a semantics thing about performance. Is she typecast as Barbie? I think all these things come into play when voters have this very subjective job to select the best in quotation marks. I learned today, Matt, that actors vote for actors. They do. Directors vote for directors. It's just not like this king-making board that's sitting no, there. No. That's it, interesting It to is me. not, Craig. And now when they get to the final vote, your production designers will be able to vote for best actress, and your actors will be able to vote for sound and production design. But yes, so the Margot Robbie, if we want to call it a snub, and I'm not sure I'm going to call it that, I will call the Gerwig directing a snub. The best actress people were nominated by actors in the business, actors and actresses. So if you're going to blame anybody, blame the actors and actresses in the industry. And the directors nominated the directors. Now, the directors this is probably two, 300 people is all of, of, of those 6,000 Academy members, maybe more than that for the directors, maybe five, 600. So that's a small group that's nominating for directors. I'm not sure what they saw. I'm sure Gerwig was sixth place. If I could look at that voting, mm-hmm. I'm sure she was sixth. But that's, that's the one people are going to talk about. But I think Barbie's going to win Best Song for the Eilish siblings. Well, Billie Eilish and her brother Phineas O'Connell. I think it's going to win production design. I think it's going to win costumes as well. Ryan Gosling might win supporting actor. It's him versus Robert Downey, I think, in that category. I think Lily Gladstone's the favorite now to win Best Actress, although Sandra Huller is amazing in Anatomy of a Fall. And Emma Stone, as I've said to you, just knocks it out of the park and poor things. Supporting actress, I think it's going to be Divine Joy Randolph winning for The Holdovers, which is a wonderful movie if people have not seen it, and that's back in theaters this weekend. And Oppenheimer's your pick for Best Picture. Oh, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a lock, absolute lock to win Best Picture, 13 nominations. Matt, you have a memory you want to share with us. Yeah, director Norman Jewison died this week, uh, born in Canada. He was one of the last of the big film directors from the 60s and 70s. Uh, He was 97 years old, did not win the Academy Award, but was nominated three times for In the Heat of the Night, 1967, Fiddler on the Roof, 1971, and Moonstruck, his most popular film, 1987. He did get the Thalberg Oscar, which is for producing. I also love The Thomas Crown Affair. He He directed the original with Steve McQueen, much better than the Pierce Brosnan remake. And he directed McQueen also, his buddy McQueen, in The Cincinnati Kid, which did for poker what The Hustler did for pool. I always say that. So very good craftsman-like director. Uh, in the Heat of the Night remains an important movie in the late 60s. We have a black man and a white man working together in the South, Rod Steiger, Sidney Poitier, to solve that murder. And it, be, it became a touchstone film of that time. Matt, I'm going to handle trivia just okay. a little bit differently this week, and it goes along the lines of what I knew we were going to talk about relative to the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Totally subjective here, Matt. All right. <laughs> Who's your biggest Oscar snub of all time? Glenn Close not winning Best Actress for Fatal Attraction. We've been to the movies with Matt O'Lean. More Main Street is on your menu. Stay with us. 
I'm Jeremy Hobson. A new proposal coming out of Louisiana would allow all families in the state to use taxpayer dollars to send their kids to a school of their choice, including private schools. So what do you think? Should parents have the right to use public funds in this way? We're live from WWNO in New Orleans and taking your calls at 844-4MIDDLE. That's 844-464-3353. You can leave a message or join us live next time on The Middle. Friday at 3 o'clock Central, 2 o'clock Mountain. This is Dakota Datebook for January 25th. Anton Kovlin and Alec Panasuk were neighboring farmers in Dogden, North Dakota. In September 1917, the two men got into a dispute over horses. Witnesses from each family told different stories, but could agree on one thing. Alec Panasuk died. Anton Kovlin and his 14-year-old daughter Julia were arrested for murder. Anton, an immigrant from Russia, had arrived in North Dakota with his wife Fanny in 1900. Their daughter Julia was born in 1903. It was not Anton's first brush with the law. He was arrested in April 1910 for assault. Three months later, Anton and Fanny were arrested for obstructing an officer, but were found not guilty. In 1911, he was charged with petty larceny. In 1912, he was arrested again, charged with assault and battery, and found not guilty. Then came the argument over horses. Alec Panasuk's horses had wandered over onto the Kovlin farm. Fanny Kovlin caught the horses and was walking them to town to turn them into the pound. Alec followed her and offered $5 for the return of his horses. A struggle ensued, and Anton went to his wife's rescue. At one point, Alex Panasuk had Anton Kovlin pinned down, and Fanny Kovlin jumped into the fray. Daughter Julia Kovlin heard her father call for help and ran from their home with a shotgun. According to Mrs. Panasuk, Anton Kovlin took the gun and shot her husband in the neck. Julia claimed that she shot Alec to save her father. Anton and Fanny also claimed that Julia fired the shot. Anton and Julia were put on trial in January 1918. Anton, Julia, and Fanny Kovlin all testified that Julia did the shooting. Mrs. Panasuk testified that Anton killed her husband and that Julia was taking the blame to save her father from prison. A neighbor who witnessed the event wasn't sure who did the shooting. On this date in 1918, newspapers across the state reported the verdict of not guilty. The Kovlins profusely thanked the jury in Russian. The Kovlin family moved to Minnesota in 1920. Julia became a schoolteacher, married in 1926, and had four children. She died in 2000 at 96 years old. Today's datebook was written by Trista Razor Stursa. I'm Dana DelVal. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding by Humanities North Dakota, North Dakota's largest lifelong learning community. And that's a wrap for today's Main Street. Coming up tomorrow at 2 o'clock Mountain, 3 o'clock Central, it's The Middle with Jeremy Hobson as they talk about using public funds for private education. And at 7 o'clock Central, it's Science Friday. That's tomorrow. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.